Welcome to the Brolly Marketing Podcast Series, where we explore anything and everything to do with running your small business. Today, we're going to look at the business journey from the first idea and subsequent startup right through to exit when you sell or pass on your business. In particular, we're going to discuss the highs and lows of this journey and what you can expect along the way. If you're a business owner, you're going to be somewhere along this winding road right now, and I hope we can provide some insight into what might be around the next business corner. My name is Dave Harris, and joining me to talk about this exciting but often scary journey is Brolly Marketing Associate Stephen McAllister. Stephen is an experienced business leader whose commercial background has developed over three decades in a diverse range of businesses, including Unilever and PepsiCo. He started his own brand new business and took it through to a multi-million pound exit in 2010, providing significant returns to all the founding shareholders. As well as working with Brolly, Stephen now owns and runs Concierge, an online rental platform. Stephen, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Uh, we've had a few technical difficulties uh, getting to this point, but we're here now, which is great. Many of us dream of starting a business and becoming fabulously successful entrepreneurs. But what does it really take to do this? I mean, is it enough to simply have a great idea? Hello, uh, Dave. Thank you for uh, inviting me on. I think probably the answer is yes. Uh, I think if starting out for the first time, you, you, it would be the... Uh, the classic, if you knew then what you know now, you wouldn't do it. There are so many things to uh, worry about if you sit down and worry. So I think when you start out having the idea, having the idea, having the passion is the, uh, the key thing. And then from there, everything else starts to work out. You've got to have the, the passion or the, the, the drive to want to do something and to take a risk. Know that it's going to be risky and whatever that risk might be. Reading between the lines, what you're saying, it, it, in a way, it's better if you don't know the, the journey ahead because it can be daunting yes i think the journey is daunting i think if someone at, on, on day one said to you here's all the uh, scary things and here are all the challenges that you're going to face it would probably put people off but you never face those all in one day you face them over the period of years and each one you face you, you learn how to, to to handle whether that's because you know what you're doing or because you have people with you who know what they're doing or uh, you've got high energy or you're lucky but the chances are you'll deal with uh, all of your challenges. But I think if someone at the start said, here's all the, the fun in inverted commas you're going to have, it might scare some people away. We're going to talk about some of those obstacles in the road uh, throughout this podcast. But before we do, I wonder whether you could briefly tell me a little bit about your own journey. Uh, I mentioned in the introduction that you took a company from startup uh, to successful exit, uh, 10 million pounds. Sounds like a big, big amount of money to me. So tell me a little bit about that, how that went and, and what, your, what were the highlights? So I think to, to start with, it was a business I set up with two other, two work colleagues who I would now say are friends, but they, they were work colleagues at the time. We were working in uh, an IT uh, reseller and part of what that company resold was the, from the technology companies was the support and maintenance contracts, classic way of doing it years ago, buy hardware and get a support contract for 20% per annum of the value of the purchase to, to give you access to engineers and upgrades and so on and so forth. And what we realized was that those organizations weren't very good at renewing those contracts so that the repeat revenue was drifting away. We reckoned nobody was really interested in making it better. We thought we could. We decided to strike out on our own and go to those companies and uh, set up to do that and then built a business over years that eventually a competitor, and I would say sorry, they were a partner and a competitor. Some things they complemented us with, some things they didn't eventually came in and bought us after we'd been operating for 
seven years. So Stephen, let's talk a little bit about the, the journey now in more detail and, and, uh, and what you learned along the way. Because I know that you, uh, you know, we've talked about this before, and I know that you have some, some clear ideas about what, what people need to think about when they're, you know, when they're considering this fairly momentous step of starting a business. Um, so what would be, I know, I know you, one of your things is about is is kind of having a plan and kind of having a knowing where you're going so talk to me a little bit about that and and what you've learned from your own experience yes i think um again looking back to what we did we were lucky in this aspect um but it's important in retrospect and that's at the start when you're setting out and and i was setting out with two partners two co-founders was to be absolutely clear about what you want the the end game to be so are we all agreed that we are selling this thing? Are we all agreed that it's a lifestyle business? What are we doing? And what we learned in retrospect was that the three of us being incredibly clear about that from minute one made a lot of decisions really, really easy. We were knew where we were going. And tell me about this this business between, you know, a lifestyle business, as you just called it, or or planning to sell. I mean, what what, what fundamental for those who've not been through this, what, what fundamentally are the differences between those two things? I think a lifestyle business is you're, you're planning to keep it for all of your working life, let's say. Uh, you're planning that it will, you will work in it for all of your working life and that it will give you a salary of whatever you deem to be sensible. So essentially you're making decisions that are all around, I want this business to generate a salary for me or my partners or whoever, and I'm, I'm planning to be here in perpetuity. If you're trying to exit the business, Essentially what you're saying is, I'm going to build a business that ultimately doesn't need me in it. So how are you going to build it so that it survives without you in place? And that quite often is a big challenge. And when I sell it, I'm selling it for a sufficiently large sum of money that the money I gain from the sale may or may not be life-changing, may or may not become a pension, but I, I'm collecting a lump sum and leaving as opposed to having this salary that goes on for many, many years. Yeah, those are those are very interesting and, and I guess fundamental differences, aren't they? And and I suspect that a lot of people, when they start out, probably don't necessarily consider those two versions of events, as it were, and and perhaps you know perhaps just think, well, I've got a great idea, or or I love doing what I do, and I want to, I don't want, to, you know, I want to be my own boss, you know, all those usual things that can drive us you know, to leave the security or the relative security of, of, of a salary to do it on our own. And then I suppose there's that blurry line between being a freelancer or running a business, you know, and where and all those sorts of things. So so I guess that that it is important, isn't it? You know, that to, to try and get a distinction between the lifestyle business and the wanting to sell it one day. Yes. And I think what you build is completely different as well. So, so you're quite right. As someone who says, I want to be a freelancer, I would argue that's a lifestyle business. There's there's not a business there to sell. There's a person's services and they'll sell them at a day rate or an hourly rate. And that's absolutely fine. But building a business is I'm building an organization. It has a product, it has a service, whatever it might be. There's other people involved. It, it can survive and should survive without me as the founder, if you like. And someone may come in and want to, to acquire that. And I think you're right. Somebody starting out might go, I want to have a business because it's going to be fun. Fantastic. And might part, long, part way along decide. They want, to, they want to sell it. They want to make the money out of selling it. And therefore, how do they get themselves ready for that? My, my learning was, um, and, it, and the feedback we had over the years was that the three of us who had this business were incredibly clear and people were impressed by how clear and consistent we were. And that helped us a lot of the time when we could say, we know what we're doing. Sorry, we don't know what we're doing. We know where we want to get to. Here's the timescale we think we're on. And we're very consistent. So my advice would be if you're setting a business up with partners, 
make sure you all have the same view because if there's a difference one wants to sell once a lifestyle one wants a lifestyle business that'll become a real bone of contention at some point in the future okay so let's assume that we've you know we've got a great idea we've agreed it with our partners if we have partners and we we kind of know that we want to exit one day and, and sell it. How do you go about doing things like setting a timescale and saying, you know, right, well, we're going to do this for five years or 10 years or 15 or, or, or six months or, you know, how, how on earth do you make, do you make those sorts of decisions or, or, or does that not really matter at the beginning? I think everybody should have a timescale. They, they should have an idea of what they want to do. And, and again, it's maybe about being consistent uh, if, there are, if there are multiple um, partners to start with. I think everybody starts off with the ambitious, we will grow and sell this within three years or three to five years and circumstances never go as quickly as you expect. So my suggestion is you do want to have a clear plan. And that might say, if you want to sell the business in five years, what does it need to look like? What does it have to have do revenue structure in order to be sellable? And there's and then you start working toward that plan, whatever that might look like. And whether that takes three years, five years, seven years, is not really always in your control. Or it might be, you might choose to sell it in three years for very small money, but you might want not to do that. So to some extent, it depends on when you're attractive to other organizations, other businesses to buy you. So setting an absolute date in the diary when you're gonna sell, no, that uh, you'll never be able to predict the date, but you can absolutely say, this is what I need to do in order to be good enough and at the right stage where I'm sellable, the business is sellable. Okay, so let's now talk uh, about some of the the dangers, if you like, some of the things that are going to get in the way that are going to you know, perhaps trip you up if you're not careful uh, and bring the whole thing crashing down around your ears. So what's, what would you say is the most important thing that you've got to consider you know, when you're starting out and as you, as you are on this road towards hopefully success? Probably. I mean, there'd be lots of different aspects. M my view, the experience we had, was the thing to watch, the thing that can take you out fastest is cash, running out of cash. And that can be because you've misunderstood your cash flow. And what I mean by that is you, you assume you're going to get tons of revenue in very quickly and you don't, and you're struggling. Uh, it could be because your customers don't pay. They take 90 days instead of 30 days. Uh, it could be because you haven't got your funding in place, so you kind of hope somehow you get funding and isn't quite there and you run out of money. So for us, the thing that kept me awake most often at night in the life of our business was making sure we had enough cash. Yeah, because presume, I mean, there are, there are laws and things about trading insolvently and all that sort of stuff. So, so you've got to be a bit careful with that sort of thing, haven't you? Make sure the money is coming in. You do. And, and again, if you're building a business and you have people in the business, uh, the biggest pressure every month is the payroll. It's making sure you have the cash for the payroll um, and then the VAT man and so on and so forth, the tax authorities. But uh, they're non-negotiable. So you have to manage a business to be, to be able to do that. And, and in terms of, of the cash, I mean, one hears wise people say that, that a lot of businesses are undercapitalized by which i take it to mean they don't have enough cash sitting in the bank you know and they don't you know and therefore they do run this risk of being subject to circumstances like a, a major customer going bankrupt or something like that and, and 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 a debt going bad how do you insure against that i mean what is tell me about capitalization and and what you can do to guard against running out of cash so i don't think there's any one golden fix if you like um Capitalization, yes, you want to have enough cash reserves to see you through tough times. So that might be, for example, you say that um, 
the minimum cash position every month is a month's worth of, of, of fat, if you like, where you could cover a month with, with uh, no extra income coming in if sales dry up. So you might take a view like that. Uh, we had a business that had a lot of repeat revenue, so we were contracted to customers and they paid us a monthly fee. So our concerns were less that our sales are going to, to dry up. The, the thing I learned from cash is watch it like a hawk. Pay absolute attention to it. Never assume that all is well. Always know where you're, what your bank balance is. Know when you're expecting payment from your, your clients. Know what your commitments are, what's going on. So know what, pay, what your payroll is going to be this month, when your VAT returns are going to take place, how much they're going to be worth. And be really, really, really tuned into if anything goes wrong, anything changes, know about it quickly. Don't get caught realizing a month after it happened that it was an event that's really, really made a big impact and you're a month after it before you start to react to it. React, know about it and be able to react really quickly. And so I suppose that's essentially a cash flow forecast, you know, knowing what you're expecting to get in over the next month and just as importantly, perhaps more importantly, what's going to go out over the next month so that you can, and then you put those two things together and in theory, you know what's left in the bank account. Exactly right. So you're right. It's a better way of describing it is just as you've said, it was a cash flow forecast. And what we did, we had that in place all of the time. We reviewed it regularly and we would regularly look at it and go, it doesn't read very well. So we either have to pull some income forward if we can, or we have to push some of our expenses back if we can. And in the tough days, you might say, look, the director's salaries can be delayed by a week because they can live with that. It's you know part of the fun of owning the business and it'll, it'll help the cash position. And I suppose the the um, the other thing with a cash flow forecast is if, if you if you do keep it up and and, and you are you're reviewing it regularly and you're adjusting it and that sort of thing, you can also see I suppose it, it, uh, at a very simple level certainly whether you're meeting targets and things like that because if you know that you know you're you thought you'd have this much in the bank at the end of October, and then it turns out you got five grand less or five grand more, it sort of gives you a little a sort of snapshot of the health of the business would you say it does it absolutely does because quite often people look at profit and look at sales as the the measure of success and they are measures but cash is that there's the lifeblood so it, it absolutely gives you a view of how well you're doing and if you make a loss in one month that'll impact your cash one or two months down the road you'll see the impact flow through in less cash so it's a real measure of the health of the business and presumably, if you're you know trying to look for more investment or, or, or a bank loan or something like that, then knowing your cash position, knowing you know and, and what it's likely to be over the coming months, is also going to be a sign that you under, you really understand the fundamentals of your business. Yes, and and you see this in TV shows like Dragons Den, where clearly they edit it for effect, but somebody doesn't know their numbers, and the dragons are not impressed. And my experience is that's that's actually true. I was lucky enough to always be complimented on how well I understood the numbers in the business. It's just, I like numbers, it's my, it's my thing. But it, whether they be uh, bankers, accountants, lenders, investors, whatever, you have to be able to show that you know the underlying numbers in your business. Otherwise, that you look incompetent and, and your credibility is weakened. So I would, I would always recommend somebody in the team absolutely needs to understand this stuff really, really well. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right about Dragon's Den. I must admit, it, it comes up again and again, doesn't it? Where, where they, they sort of say, well, you know, what are your numbers? And there's a sort of horrible silence, you know. As the, and these people are often very passionate about their ideas and, they, and, they're, and they're great, you know, they're great people with great ideas, but they just have paid no attention to the numbers. And, and yeah, and as you say, that's, that's a recipe for disaster, isn't it? In a lot of regards, it's not their skill set. They're inventive. They're creative. They've, they've had the idea. They're passionate. And that's what they should do. But I guess it's, it's difficult if they're really, really small businesses is if they can't do the numbers because it's not their thing, have somebody in the team who can do the numbers and give them the, 
give them the responsibility of keeping an eye, so to speak. So we've talked about cash, but what are the other things that you want to consider, you know, from day one uh, that are important to your business? Let's assume you're building a business and you're going to grow it and you're going to employ people. Be clear about the culture of your business. So I know this is a subject that many people talk and write many, many things about, but at the the very simplest, what are your principles? So I'll give you an example. Uh, When we started the business, we all had young family. And one of our principles was that um, if you needed to go for, you know, to the dentist, to the, the Christmas play, to the school parents meeting, whatever, just go. Didn't matter. We trusted everybody that they just take the time when they needed and people would work that time back. And, and we had some simple principles like that that we wanted just to allow uh, the business to operate to. And when people joined us, those principles were very key that they, they understood it and they were happy to operate that way. And then the challenge is how do you keep, if, if you get a culture that you like, how do you keep that? Uh, in place as the business grows. Uh, We were lucky enough to grow, or unlucky enough, depending on your viewpoint, to grow to about 100 people. And there's somewhere at maybe 30, 40, 50 people where you you have to change how you run the business because there are so many so many heads in it. And the challenge is how do you keep all the fun stuff that people would like and be attractive without putting in place tons and tons of rules to try to manage the lowest common denominator so the learning i think i took out of it and i think we took out of it was don't ruin your culture or spoil it because you're growing if you have people who you think are going to abuse it take them on deal with them but try and keep the culture the things that you liked that you wanted that you enjoyed at the start work hard to keep those in place as you grow and presumably recruitment is a, is a key part of that you know you've got to you've got to recruit the right people yeah, and, and it's a nightmare recruiting, isn't it? It, it? The cynical view says you might as well flip a coin because you never get it right all of the time. As much as possible using contacts, using people who knew people. So individuals come in with some form of, not reputation so much, but they, they had a feel for us and we had a feel for them. But yeah, um, you can put a lot of time and cost actually, a lot of cost into recruiting. And it can be not only the, for a small business, it's not just the cost of paying, let's say a recruitment fee, if that's the way people are doing it. It's the cost of finding out that someone you recruited isn't right and the three or four or five or six months that you lose before you realise it and go back to square one. That's really painful and really expensive. I'm interested in what you said about growing, that you grew your own business to around about 100 people. And because I've heard it said by by some entrepreneurs and people that run businesses that there's a sort of, there's a point, you know, you start your business and, and, and you maybe, you know, it's you and a couple of partners and maybe a couple of employees. And it's kind of relatively straightforward, you know, at that point and then you grow because you want to grow and you move into that sort of five six ten twenty employees and what i've heard said is that that is a bit of a nightmare then because you're working your butt off to first of all to meet the payroll obviously but also all the personnel issues that come with that but you're not quite big enough to employ people to kind of handle that for you. I mean, these are generalizations and I'm sure there are, there, are, there are different variations of this. But once you get above, say, 50 employees, then you can, you know, your turnover is big enough and hopefully your profits are big enough that you can then employ people to help you with that side of things, HR, managers, that sort of stuff, so that it's not all on your shoulders as a business owner. I mean, is that, is that apocryphal or, or would you say that's a reasonable summary of the employment road? I think that's fair. And I think the numbers of heads and where, it, where it, those problems kick in might be vary from business to business or possibly not that much variation. But, but you're right. There's a, there's a point where... When, when you start out, you're jack of all trades and you stay jack of all trades through a period of time. 
you recruit people in and usually it's in response to a growing business. We're a new customer, we need new people to deliver it, whatever, that's fine. And you're right, there's a, there's a point at which you, you get busier and busier and busier. And the business probably doesn't make an awful lot more money it's sometimes there because you're, as you bring in new revenue, you're bringing in new heads. And the hard part is at what point do you step back and say, right, and as we talked earlier, when do you have someone who looks after your cash flow for you? It's a very simply put one. Or when do you have someone who makes, who makes sure that a few HR policies are put in place? And again, the way we fixed it was we didn't want to recruit full, use cash flow as an example. We didn't want to recruit an accountant or a finance manager full time. It was too expensive for us. So what we went looking for was who would want to work three days a week, five hours a day. And it was something like an accountant who was a mum of young kids who could only work during school hours and only wanted to work. So we went looking for one of those. And what we ended up finding was somebody who's really skilled, way overqualified for the role that we had. But the role we had absolutely suited her for the years when the kids were at primary school. So it's. That sort of stuff. I, and I think that's a, that's a really good example, I suppose, of thinking outside of the box a bit, you know, that you do not have to employ, you know, a full-time, very expensive finance director who's on the board and all that sort of thing. You know, there, there are people out there who have these skill sets, but because of, as you say, their lifestyle choices, they they need a different, you know, they need a different way of doing it. And uh, and so that's a, that, that's a great example, isn't it? Yeah, and, and it worked for us. And it was this particular day, really good person stayed with us for years. And you're right, we never had that big heavyweight finance person until until we knew we were getting into we were getting ready for sale when we had to start making the business look right then we recruited someone and he only worked again he only worked for us a day a week two days a week maximum and it was all about you're not here to be the fd in terms of just running you know the cash flow forecast you're here specifically to help us do the things we need to do to get us ready to look attractive to a potential acquirer so let's let's um let's jump ahead then and talk about that about the sort of preparation for exit you know let's assume everything's gone well you know and you've survived the early years and you've got you know you've got your employees and and they're all happy and you're you're, you're meeting your cash flow targets so you're thinking you know okay well this business has some value now so first of all how do you work out what that value might be i mean how do you how do you put a price on a business if you are thinking well maybe i'll sell this in a year or two good question very good question there's a whole lot of answers anything from what would somebody pay for it? And, and it may be that the value they assign to it's different to you. Um, because, So for example, when we sold, part of our value to the customer wasn't our customers, sorry, part, part of the value to the people who bought us wasn't our customers. It was the access it gave them to other things. So they had a, there was a value that was, for us, limited but for them a lot. So what, what, what will your acquirer pay? Hard to know. What do you want? Um, do you have a number in your head that is the number you have to sell for before you're prepared to sell? And then you can do the classics, you know, multiples of sales, multiples of profit, so on and so forth. And actually at that point, I think you're best to engage with advisors and say, this is what we got. This is how we're trying to sell it. These are the sorts of people we think are likely to buy it. How do we articulate best value to them? What works in terms of almost justifying the number? I want to sell it for X. How do I justify that number? Within reason. There's no point going in and saying, I want 100 million for something that's worth you know, 10 pence. But within reason, I have a rough idea of what I think I want. How do I make, how do we justify that with rationale? Stephen, I think when most people are thinking about selling a business or how they might sell a business in the future, they, they sort of assume that it'll be some big corporate takeover, you know, the, the, the competitor, the large competitor down the road will come along and swallow them up, you know, and, and, uh, and they'll make lots of money. But there are other types of, of uh, ways to sell a business, aren't there? I mean, management buyouts and things like that. So, so talk to me a little bit about the, the sorts of buyers you should be considering. At one end of the spectrum, you could have a an investor who wants to take a company 
or a private equity firm who wants to take a minority or a majority share in the business, which is a type of sale, um, but you're not actually getting out of the business, you're not exiting, so you might need, you want to decide whether that's sensible or not. At one end of the spectrum, a company is going to come in and just say, I want to buy the whole business. And then maybe the question is all around how long do you want to stay afterwards? How long do they want you to stay? And what job do you want to do or not do? And I would say the same with the MBO, the, the management buyout, is if the team that your management team buy, buy you out, and, and well done for having a good management team there, what do you want to do? So you'll always have a debate about price with whoever's buying from you. The other question will be, what do you want to do when it's sold? Are you still there? Are you leaving? Are you staying for a year? What is your um, desire? And and talk to me a little bit about um, the thing you mentioned there, which I think is called an earnout period or something like that, where where you stay in a business after you've sold it. Is that is that quite common? And if so, why? Yes, it is. And I think there's there's two or three reasons for it. Primarily, the new owner ultimately wants to run the business by themselves. I, I, my view, they want to run the business as theirs once they've bought it. But for the first period of time, they just want to make sure they've got all the expertise that, that existed within the owners, shareholders, whatever, before they let those, those people leave. So therefore, they want them to hang around and it should be a brain dump. It should be about show them how to, not show them how to run the business, make sure they know everything they need to know about how they want to run the business. And then the final part of that is you may or may not have an earnout, and that meaning as you just said, Dave, with the earnout, it means essentially is some of the agreed price for the business being held back subject to your performance for that year, two years, whatever? Do you just have to stay employed for that year or two years? So again, I would argue when you're negotiating the exit, making sure you're clear about the earnout is important. Let's talk before we finish about, again, about your own experience and about the highs and lows or that you experienced as a business owner from, you know, from startup through to sale. So, what would you say were the were, were the highs? What were the things you really enjoyed about it? I think I enjoyed working with the team. You, you, it, it's fun. It, it's your show. It's and if you if you're lucky enough to have good people around you, which it's your business, you should have. Uh, it was great fun. It was it was a thrilling a thrilling ride. So the ability to work with people, and for me, one of the things I always enjoyed was the ability to move quickly. Always be nimble. Um, you don't have to sit and and, and think about things. Or be nimble. So those were the fun. It was it was the thrill. It was working with people. It was being nimble. Were probably uh, the most enjoyable. In retrospect, they were the most enjoyable things. And I suppose we should ask about the lows as well, because I'm sure there are one or two of those. So so tell tell me about those. A, a couple of things. Uh, the stress. For sure, there is stress. And I would say, in my own experience, the stress of managing cash. If, if it's tight in cash, that is a stress. It's the whole business is riding on it. So that was always there as a stress. And I would say small business and if you're lucky enough to have multiple customers it's managing the demands of multiple customers so we were delivering software as a service and at times if the sales guys are doing well which they, they did then how do you manage to deliver all of that and keep everyone happy that could be a fairly a stressful piece and, and then finally whether it was a stress or not was the business is sold we're still in it on our own out we're not on control anymore and it's there's, a, there's an element of sadness in watching someone else take your business and do something different with it that's the plan. It still doesn't stop you feeling a little bit sad at the end. Yeah, your baby has grown up and, and has left home sort of thing. OK, look, Stephen, thank you so much for talking to us. It's been extremely interesting. Uh, you've been listening to the Brolly Marketing Podcast with our very special guest, Stephen McAllister. If you'd like to find out more about Stephen and about Brolly Marketing and the multidisciplinary services it offers, please go to www.brollymarketing.co.uk. 
where you'll find information about Stephen's expertise and, of course, more podcast episodes. So please subscribe, share and keep listening.